Uh, you can be seated. Thanks so much for being here this morning and, uh, and uh, being at Outward Church. I'm so glad we had two services because uh, this is pretty dang full. So um, listen, uh, just excited that you're here. My name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here along with uh, the, the elders, and, uh, which is a, a group of guys. I think there are seven of us now. And so uh, we started the church like 10 years ago. And God has sought to, to bless that. It's been, it's been awesome uh, to be together. So we're glad. If you're here for the first time, we're just so thankful that you decided to come to Outward Church. And so thanks for being here. So we've been in a series in, in the book of Philippians. So I'm going to try to catch you up real quick as to uh, what, would, uh, what you'd need to know uh, in regards to this book that we're in and to help you understand where, where we're going here. But the book of Philippians is written by this guy, uh, the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison uh, to these people in Philippi. And he's really speaking to them, and, and, he's, and there's some things that he's, he's wanting to get after with them, even though he's, he really loves this church. He loves this church that he uh, helped plant in the city of Philippi. And he really wants them to get along. He wants them to get along because there's some infighting. There's some issues that are happening there. I don't know if you've ever heard of a church that actually fights with itself. I know that's a crazy idea, but um, there is some fighting going on. And so the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to them, like, I want you to be of one mind. I want your thinking to be the same. And in fact, I want your thinking to change a little bit. I want it to change in line with who Jesus is. And so he's been trying to communicate uh, to them this idea over and over again, and now he's getting into something that is really quite cool. It's one of the most, um, uh, it, it's one of the most poetic sections of, of the New Testament. Um, it's called uh, oftentimes the Christ hymn. It's called a Christ hymn because it, it almost seems like it's a song or it's a creed or it's something that these Christians know or have heard before. The Apostle Paul could have written it. The, the other cool thing about this is that we see from this that these Christian people believed these things about Jesus from a very early uh, point in history because the book of Philippians was one of the first books written. And so we know that the Christians believe this. It's not something that just happened as a result of the Gospels being written and so forth. So he's, he's going to re reiterate to them who Jesus is, and he's going to tell them what he's like so that... They can understand and they can take this on and they can allow this to become a part of their lives. It says in chapter 2, verse 4, we'll begin there. It says, let each of you look not only, uh, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, uh, uh, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is where the song begins. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what we see in this passage is that it's talking about who Jesus is, and it's saying, you got relational issues in your life, you've been fighting with each other, your marriage in, in kind of a mess, you guys keep going after each other, here's what you're forgetting. You're forgetting who Jesus is. 
You're forgetting what he's like. And if you really knew and if you really understood who Jesus is and what he's like, then you would be able to take the next step towards growth. But because you don't know this, this keeps continuing to happen. And so he's laying out for them who Jesus is. So in verse 5, what he had said was this, is that, I'm sorry, verse 6, he says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We talked about John chapter 1, verse 1 last week, which says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is talking about Jesus. Uh, the word word uh, represents who Jesus is. It represents that he was with God and that he actually was God. And so he is God. And then it goes on to say that he is the creative force of God, that he is creating along as God with God. So it's kind of confusing, but he's God. Here he is. So even though he's in the form of God, he doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what does that mean? It means this, that all of his divine attributes are in such a way that he is not necessarily just clinging on to those things and saying, I have to have these things. I have to have these things uh, be true in my life. What he's saying is he's saying he doesn't hang on to these things as though he's grasping onto them, but he lays them aside in a sense. So he's not grasping after these things, which is different than us because oftentimes what we do is that we're often going after the things that are ours. Like, I want this glory. I want this power. I want this job. If I could be seen in this way, then these things would happen, and then I would be somebody who's seen as being an awesome person. And so we keep going after those things, but Jesus doesn't do that. So Jesus humbles himself in, people say three ways. I see four ways. He humbles himself in his existence. Even though he exists as God, he does not grasp or cling onto this position. He's born in a stable as a carpenter's son. He's not really honored as God in the flesh. He is cast aside and ultimately he's cru crucified but first of all, he has humility in his ex existence. Secondly, what it says is that he has humility in emptying himself to become man. So Jesus doesn't lose any of his godness. He doesn't lose his divine attributes. What he does is he takes on humanity. He takes on flesh. And when he takes on flesh, what is diminished is his glory. He's not seen as glorious in the way that he was with the Father. In fact, he says that in John chapter 17. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before I left you, basically. And so what, what happens is this, is that instead of him looking glorious, he takes on flesh and he is not seen as glorious as much in his life. So that's the second thing. He's got humility in emptying himself to become man. The third thing is that he doesn't just become a man, but he becomes a servant. He becomes a slave is what the word actually means there. He becomes a slave. So he's not just, he's not just like this regular guy. Like that would be cool and all, but more than just becoming a regular guy, he is a servant. He's a slave of other people. And so he's operating in that way. So he's, he has this humility over and over again. And then the final way, which we're going to talk about right now, is that he has humility in his death. So look at verse 8 with me. It says, in being found and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, why does Paul 
add that, even death on a cross. In fact, people believe that those, that first line there, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, like that's a part of the original song or the, the poem or whatever he's doing here. And then he interjects this parenthetical remark and says, even death on a cross. Now, why would he say that? Well, it's because of this. It's not just that he died, it's how he died. That is incredibly important. It's not just that Jesus died, it's how he died. That really speaks to his humility. So if you were to uh, look at this, what you would see is this, is that it's very similar to the way that we see death. We want to know how somebody died. If somebody has an untimely death, if they die early in life, we might say, how did they die? I remember the day that I got a phone call from my buddy Jeb, and he called me, and he was in tears, and he said, John is dead, my buddy John. And I remember the first thought in my mind was, how did he die? How did John die? What happened? And come to find out that the way that John died was that he was in a motorcycle accident. And he was on this long road, and he had just bought this crotch rocket. Uh, is that even appropriate to say it's Easter service? But a motorcycle, a fast motorcycle. How about that? We'll edit this out of the podcast. But uh, he, bought, he bought this motorcycle. <laughs> Whoever's clapping over here, I know. That's my wife. She's making fun of me. Whatever. All right. All right. I've never said that word on stage. So there we go. Okay, so he has this fast motorcycle. We're talking about death here. Be serious. Um, he's driving down this road, and this Chevy Blazer pulls out right in front of him, and he hits the Blazer. And, the, and so we all, me and all of our friends, went to that corner right there, and we stood around, and we were trying to imagine, how did John die? How did John die? And so we were trying to recreate the situation, and then somebody who had been there um, came uh, to the place where, where he had died, and they told us what had happened, that this blazer had pulled up, uh, pulled out, because the sun was in their eyes, and John just broadsided them in his motorcycle, and he hit, he hit the blazer, and then he flew this way, and he f fell on the ground, and they said that they were there with him in his dying moments, and there was some comfort there to know that there was somebody with my friend John as he was dying, and he wasn't like writhing in pain, but he was just sitting peacefully. And so it was incredibly important. It's not just that John died. It's how John died. See, the same thing's true of Jesus. It's not just that he died. It's how he died. See, our focus is this, is that we don't want to see people suffer. Like public suffering is to be avoided at all costs. It's in really every culture in many cases. It's, it's in every culture. We don't want to suffer publicly. Like in, a, in the midst of a recession, if your house gets foreclosed on because you can't make your bills and you lose your house, it's embarrassing. Why? Because that's public suffering. It's you're suffering financially, and it's obvious that you're suffering financially. And so it's public suffering, and we don't want to suffer publicly. As a, as, a, as a man, like when I watch a, a show or a movie with my wife and I kind of get a little uh, uh, teary-eyed or something like that, I don't want her to know. Why? Because I, I'm, I have empathy for what's going on in the show, and that's public suffering. It's embarrassment. It's the way that that goes. In fact, many uh, of the reality TV shows that we see, 
things like that. People cover their face if they begin, if they begin to cry, they begin to suffer. You see it on YouTube when, uh, when you see people who are um, it, purposefully inflicting abuse on someone else. You've heard these stories before where there's some child who's being taken advantage of and someone's, uh, you know, in a fight with them. I don't know if, you're, if you've ever been on YouTube, you start watching some cat videos, like doing something stupid or whatever, like somebody's eating Tide Pods or something ridiculous like that. And then sooner or later, you get to a video of, uh, you know, some people on the street having a street fight. They're, they're duking it out. And one guy's getting beat down. I don't even know how this ends up on on TV, but you look at that and you say, that's horrific. Why is that horrific? Because that person is being mocked. They're being beaten. They're suffering publicly. You see that over and over again. You see that with ISIS. Why does ISIS try to make people suffer publicly? Because it has the maximum impact of deterrent, has the maximum impact of effect in what they're doing. See, Jesus is a real person. And he's God in the flesh. He's the God-man. And Paul really wants us to understand something, and that is that Jesus, he didn't just die. It's not like he died in his sleep and it was peaceful. It was even death on a cross. Like he was tortured publicly. Now, why is this so horrific? It's horrific because Jews believed that to be hung on a cross or to be hung on a tree is to be cursed. Romans couldn't even be crucified because they were Roman citizens. This was only saved for the people that they hated the most. And why is that? Because it was public suffering, public shaming, to be stripped naked. The pictures don't do it justice of Jesus. It would make for an uncomfortable movie uh, or, or picture to have this. But they were stripped naked and nailed to a cross. And they sat there and they bled out for days, oftentimes. Jesus did not. But they were sitting there and they were publicly shamed. They were publicly suffering. And so Paul says, it's not just that he died. It's that he died on a cross. And he went through this excruciating humiliation. It was absolute humiliation to the bottom of his life to the core of who he was. It wasn't that he just became a man. It wasn't that he laid aside his glory. It wasn't just that he uh, became a servant. It wasn't just that he died. It's that he died on a cross. And when you see that he died on a cross, then you can begin to understand the level of humiliation that he went through. And so what was the result of that? What's the result of this level of humiliation to be humiliated publicly in the way that Jesus was? Well, it takes a massive turn. It goes all the way down, and then it skyrockets up with this verse. In verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. He has highly exalted him. And why does it say that? It says this, the original word there would mean that he was super exalted. That he was super exalted above all things everywhere. And why is that important? Well, it's because of this. It's because the resurrection is the most powerful thing that's ever taken place. In fact, Paul almost skips over it entirely and he just talks about the exaltation of Christ. And so he's saying he's completely humiliated, but now he's exalted. And see, here's the thing. You and I are really into these stories. 
We're really into these stories that begin with absolute humiliation and end in exaltation. I don't know if you've read the book, uh, The Boys in the Boat. It's about the 1936 Olympic uh, crew team. And it really shows, it really follows one guy, the book does, um, and his name is Joe Rance. And it follows Joe Rance throughout his life and all of the things that he went through. Like here he is, a young man. He's growing up in this home and his mother dies. And so his dad marries another, another woman. And so this other woman did not love Joe very much. And so he repeatedly was being put into other homes and he had to stay at the schoolhouse and, and he just didn't sense this love and his dad didn't stand up for him. There's these repeated levels of humiliation until one day he comes home uh, up the driveway and he sees the entire family in the car. And so he says, where are we going, I believe? And his dad says, we're going, you're not. Sorry. Uh, my new wife doesn't want you with us. And so here he is, a young man. I mean, it was, it was young. I can't remember if it was 10 or 12 or something like that, but way too young to hear, I won't stick up for you. You're on your own. You got to do your own thing. It's absolute humiliation. But then it shows how he goes through repeated instances of trying and trying and trying. It's just humiliation after humiliation. But little by little, he, he begins to, to grow and he, he gets on, on this crew team and he begins to row for this team. And it ends with them winning the gold medal in front of Hitler himself in Nazi Germany against the Germans. It's such an amazing story because we love stories that start with humiliation and end with exaltation. You see it in all kinds of places. They, in romantic comedies, you'll see somebody who's not very attractive or they're not very popular or what have you, and somehow they get really uh, hot and good-looking all of a sudden, and, and, and then all of a sudden some super megastar sees them and says, I want to go out with you, and so they go out together. There's this humiliation that ends in exaltation because they get married and everything's great, even though it's just a bunch of garbage, but... Uh, you see that in these stories. You see that in our life. You see that in the things that we like to see. There's this exaltation that's followed by this humiliation. And where does this exaltation come from in Jesus' life? Well, one of the things that you see is Matthew chapter 23, verse 12 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, Jesus models the way that things are supposed to be. Jesus models, he's the example of what should be happening, which is that when we humble ourselves, we have the opportunity for exaltation. And so Jesus is our example. It's more than that, and I'll get to that in just a second, but he is our example. So when you look at the life of Jesus Christ and you look at the story, the way that all of these stories go, what's your and my story? What's our story? Our story is one of repeated instances of working towards exaltation so that we can avoid completely humiliation. You see this in really any marriage that's having difficulty. In fact, I would almost say every marriage, especially when you're new, newly married. You will not allow yourself to be humiliated. You will not allow yourself to walk in humility because you thought you got married to have this other person exalt you. 
And as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't work, at least not forever. Sooner or later, something's going to break. You see this in all kinds of relationships. I, I continually find myself in situations where I'm trying to communicate to someone, you are trying to exalt yourself rather than walking in humility. And so Paul does the very same thing. He's saying, in your relationships, the reason why you can't get along is because you don't see the reality of who Jesus is. You don't see the reality of the fact that he is somebody who allowed himself to be humiliated. In fact, intentionally planned it. In fact, that's what the Old Testament is all pointing to. It's pointing to the Messiah. It's pointing to the Christ who is Jesus. And it's pointing to him and what he's going to do. And Jesus is the model. So what's your story? How have you been seeking after exaltation over and over and over again? See, everything that we do ultimately is motivated by something. Everything that we do. When, when you get up in the morning and you feel depressed, I'd be willing to bet that at the core of that, at the root of that, is a sense of, a lack of exaltation on some level or another, not denying chemical, chemical imbalances and things like that. When you find yourself where you're discontent and unhappy in a marriage, it's because, oftentimes, because you haven't been exalted in the way that you want to be exalted. When you find yourself in relational discord, it's because you haven't been exalted and you refuse to take on the humility of Christ. And so what's the, what's the answer to this? What's the cure? Well, here's the thing. The point of the resurrection is to point to the ultimate reality of who Jesus is. The resurrection is, is not just like a blip on the screen. The resurrection is the moment that shows us, oh, he really is all that and a bag of chips, the best thing since sliced bread, like the king of kings, the lord of lords. He really is all of that. And so what Paul says is he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. He has highly exalted Jesus. He's highly exalted him. And then as a result, what takes place is that he ascends up into heaven. He ascends up into heaven after he's been resurrected. He hangs out with the disciples for about 40 days. And then what takes place after that is that he's hanging out with his guys. He gives them the great commission, which is basically him saying, I want you to make disciples. I want you to do what I want you to do. And then in Acts 1.10, he ascends up into heaven. And it says this. An angel says to the disciples as they're staring up in the sky, in Acts 1.11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It says this. It says, see, he's resurrected, and as a result of this resurrection, there's this exaltation. And we see that through the fact that he says to his disciples, All authority has been, been, been given to me. And then he ascends up to heaven, and then the angel says, like, you're going to see him again. He's returning. He's returning. What's that saying? It's saying he has rule and authority and power. 
He's ruling and reigning. Now he's in charge of all things. He always was in charge, but now he's proved it. Now he's proved it. And so what takes place? Even uh, the apostle Peter even communicates this in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. He goes on to quote a psalm that essentially says this, that because Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he goes up, he sits at the right hand of the Father. He is absolutely in control. And then it says, until I put your enemies underneath your feet as a footstool. It's saying this, it's saying that Jesus rules and reigns. He rules and reigns, and he's highly exalted. And then it says, and bestowed on him, back to Philippians uh, verse 9, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Stop right there. When you see Jesus and you see his humiliation, and then you see the resurrection, and as a result of that, his exaltation, it shows us a story that is so great, and it's the reason why every great story shows this. It's why every great story shows this, because it is the reality. Humiliation followed by exaltation. It is the most true story of all, that exaltation happens as a result of Jesus' obedience and submission to the Father, and then he's resurrected from the dead. And so Paul says this, if you want to follow in Jesus' footsteps, if you want to see what's really true, look at this, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What's he saying there? He's saying, there's going to come a day when the name of Jesus is going to be spoken in such a way that all of the angelic beings, all things in heaven, are going to bow the knee. And all beings on earth and below the earth, the living and the dead, the good and the evil, demonic powers, whatever it is, everyone, the living, the dead, angels, demons, Satan himself, those who believe in God, those who do not believe in God, those who are unsure, those who hate him, those who love him, all will bow the knee, every single one. Every single one. Why? Because he's the exalted one. Why? Because he was resurrected from the dead. He is the exalted one. And so how does that help us? How does that work for us? Well, here's the thing. If my marriage, if my life, if my relationships are built on me being exalted in all places for all times, that's not going to work. It just creates more and more discord in my life. But how do you get to a point where you say, okay, I really want to be humble. I really want to be, I really want to be humiliated. I really want to so that I can be exalted. See, that's not the way that it works. If you're trying to be humiliated so that you'll be exalted, it doesn't really work that way. How does it work? Humility, humbling, comes in this way through bowing the knee. Every knee will bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Every knee is going to bow. What is bowing the knee? Bowing the knee is absolute submission in the way that Jesus was absolutely submissive to the Father. He became obedient 
to death, even death on a cross. He was so humiliated. He was publicly shamed. He was mocked. He was all of those things. He completely submitted himself to the Father. He lived in submission to the Father. He gave up his glory. He gave up all of these things. He allowed allowed humiliation to come on his life. And so he submitted himself. Here's the thing. To bow the knee at judgment means condemnation. See, on that day, when the name of Jesus is spoken in such a way that everyone hears us and and they, they bow the knee, it will be too late. It will, there will not be time for you to say, oh, I heard this day was coming someday. Guess I'll bow the knee now. That doesn't work. See, here's the thing. There will be two kinds of people who bow the knee. There will be those who bow the knee willfully and joyfully. And they will acknowledge, yes, this is who Jesus is. But there will be many, many people who do not bow the knee willfully but begrudgingly. They bow the knee because they see that they have been beaten. They see that they have been defeated. They see there will, there will be no escaping the power of the exalted one, Jesus Christ, who's been resurrected from the dead. There will be no escaping it. They will have to bow the knee. They will bow the knee. The scripture says he will. This is the reality of life. That everyone will submit to him. And then it says in verse 11, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One commentator says, The word confess means to acknowledge, to make an open declaration. It's more than just stating that like, Yeah, Jesus is Lord. Oh, you hear that on the Oscars and on the Grammys and all of these you know, award shows. I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They said the word Lord, but the question you have to ask, I don't want to doubt everybody's salvation or their sincerity in that, but the question that you have to ask is that, is Jesus your Lord? Or is Lord like his last name? See, Lord is a title. Lord is the name that is above every name. It's the title of supreme ruler. It's it's an absolute title of absolute exaltation. And the question is, is that will I submissively bow my knee, joyfully welcoming the coming of Jesus, the one who saves Christ, the anointed one from God, who is Lord, will I joyfully bow before him? Or will I begrudgingly do so? Will I joyfully be walking or kneeling, I should say, before the exalted one? Or will it be done begrudgingly? Because here's the thing. If you claim that Jesus is your Lord, then what this means is that you live in submission to this Jesus. You've submitted your life to him. You may like God, You may may think, okay, I believe that there is a God. You may may feel like on some level, you know, I'm cool with Jesus. What this says is, is that lip service isn't helping. Lip service isn't going to do it. It's going to be submission 
to kneel before him. Submission means obedience to the risen Lord. Why? Because of this, the ultimate reality is going to take place. See, he was exalted to the right hand of the Father because of his resurrection and his obedience in his humiliation. But he's returning again. He's coming again. He's coming again, and he's going to establish his rule and reign in its fullness. Do you want to be a part of it? That's the ultimate reality. This is not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is that Jesus Christ is Lord. He rules and he reigns. And will you be a part of it? Or will you spend eternity in everlasting damnation? Will you be somebody who submits to the will of God? Or will you continue to confess that you just want to be exalted? Because that is ultimately what humanity wants. That's what I want constantly. It's what I'm fighting against all of the time. I could give you story after story. Really, the reason why I'm upset is because I was looking to be exalted. And Jesus is the exalted one. And so therefore, I have to look to Jesus as the only one who is exalted. And do you know what happens as a result of that? When I humble myself and submit to who Jesus is and say, Jesus, I see how you did that, and I see that you did that for me. I see, I see that, that you went to the cross and excruciating death in my place for my sins. When I see that and I see I can also humble myself in my marriage, in my relationships, in the way that I view other people. And as a result, what takes place is this, is that we get the smile of God on us. We get the smile of God. I may have even used this quote this last week. I can't remember. I didn't even use it in last service. It says, to the glory of God the Father at the end of the passage. But C.S. Lewis says this, for glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will open at last. See, all the time that I'm looking to be exalted, all of the time that I'm constantly going after, like I want someone to fulfill me. My marriage is here to fulfill me. I'm not happy, and so therefore, I'm not being exalted. You're a bad wife. You're a bad husband. I'm out. What that says is this, that I've never understood the gospel. I've never understood the real reality of the exalted one. I've never wanted to walk with God. All I've wanted to do is to do my own thing. That's what that says. But when we humble ourselves, bow the knee and confess, yes, Jesus, you are Lord. You are supreme ruler, the one who is reigning. I don't set the agenda. I don't make the rules. I'm not the one who gets to say what is right and what is not right. Jesus, you are Lord. You're, you are the one. And when that takes place, guess what? We get to share in his glory. We get to share in his glory. See, that's the craziest thing about this is that when we honor God with our lives because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, not to get salvation, but because Jesus has saved us, when we do that, we get to share in his exaltation. We get to share in his glory and we get the smile of God on our lives that says, yes, yes. And that kind of exaltation the yes from God, the well done from God, 
is the thing that I promise you, you have been waiting for all of your life. You've knocked on every door. You have gone in every place. You've gone to relationships. You've gone to your spouse. You've gone to drugs. You've gone to money. You've gone to fulfillment. You've gone to everything else. You've been knocking on that door. And the thing that you've been waiting for is the glory of God that you get to share with him because you submitted to him. What's your story? What's your story? How have you avoided submitting to God, to Jesus Christ as Lord? He was humiliated so that you could be exalted in him and through him. And as a result, he is the ruler and the reigning king. Won't you follow him? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I'm just praying that somehow this broke through. I think there's the thing that comes to mind the most is, is broken relationships. that many of us have, and they're just a symptom of the fact that we've never submitted ourselves to you. We refuse to apologize. We refuse to let something go. We refuse to forgive. And so we try to make ourselves king. So Lord, I'm praying that you would convict by the power of your spirit, that you would convict us where we're wrong, that you would allow us to see. That we're not really submitted to you. That we haven't really confessed you as Lord. Wherever that may be true in a Christian's life, somebody who does have a relationship with you, but Lord, there's people in here that have never given their life to you. They've never taken that humbling step of saying, I don't know what's right. I've only wronged you, God. And so, Lord, I'm praying that they would do so today. Today is the day. Now is the time of salvation. Lord, may they humble themselves and say yes to you. I want what you have. And we pray for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.